choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 127 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo Mission Control, Christopher Columbus Craft. My name is Christopher Columbus Craft Jr. My gut's got a knot in it, but for the next few minutes, there's nothing I can do. I'm in a room that I conceived in my mind, then invented. It seems almost overnight. Some of the men who helped me are here now, as quiet and grave as I am. We're waiting for news. I'm 36 years old this day, January 31, 1961. Exactly three years ago, other men worked in a dingy room only a few miles from here, and in the dark before midnight they made history. One of them flipped a toggle switch. Not far from that firing room, a Jupiter-C rocket spit flame and soared into the night sky. It carried a little 31-pound package of instruments with the grand name of Explorer. A few minutes later, Explorer 1 was a new satellite on orbit around the Earth. America, frightened and confused by the two Sputniks sent into orbit by our Cold War enemy, the Soviet Union, had finally joined the space race. Now I'm standing here mute in Mercury Mission Control, wanting to curse the silence in my headset, wanting to curse the Redstone rocket that was a Jupiter C's closest relative, wanting to curse the German who promised this wouldn't happen. I should have punched him when I had the chance, I grumbled to myself. But if I had, I probably wouldn't be here today, and somebody else would be making the decisions that could mean life or death to the astronaut in space. It isn't an astronaut out there today, it's a chimpanzee named Ham. No matter. We've all learned something today beyond the lessons laid out so carefully in our mission plan. We learned on this flight, and will repeat the lesson on many flights yet to come, that our first concern is for the crew. We've known this instinctively, of course, from the beginning of America's program to put men into space. The crew comes first. But today, when things are going wrong, we learn just how visceral those instincts are. I'm the flight director for this mission, Mercury Redstone 2, the first mission in the Project Mercury to put a living thing into space. Ham was the living thing, but we never thought of him as anything but crew. We all have monikers. They call me Flight on the Mission Control Intercom Loop. The doctor he and his brethren have given us fits for years is surgeon. The engineer responsible for getting the capsule down for monitoring and calculating its retrofire systems is called retro. 
flight dynamics, the infant science of trajectories and propulsion, is the domain of FIDO. There are others, too. The voice link between mission control and the capsule is CAPCOM, short for Capsule Communicator. Eventually, an astronaut will be CAPCOM, but today the console is manned by an engineer. Alan Shepard is nearby in the launch blockhouse. He has a personal interest in today's events. If the Redstone rocket and the Mercury capsule work well, and if Ham does his job on board that capsule, and if we do ours on the ground, Al will be next. He'll be the world's first man in space. There's only one flight director. From the moment the mission starts until the moment the crew is safe on board a recovery ship, I'm in charge. I ask. I listen. I make decisions. No one can overrule me. Not my immediate boss in NASA, Walt Whitman. Not his boss, a man I respect and revere, the guiding light of America's manned space program, Bob Gilruth. Not even Jack Kennedy, the President of the United States, who's only had his job for ten days or so. They can fire me after it's all over. But while the mission is underway, I am flight. That was a paraphrased excerpt from Chris Kraft's book titled Flight, My Life in Mission Control. Christopher Columbus Kraft, Jr. was born on February 28, 1924, in a town that no longer exists, Phobos, Virginia. The town has now been engulfed by Hampton, Virginia. Kraft was named after his father, Christopher Columbus Kraft, Sr., who was born in New York City in 1892 near Columbus Circle on 8th Avenue and 59th Street. Kraft's father was the son of Bavarian immigrants and did not like his name, but he passed it along to his son nonetheless. In latter years, Kraft, as well as other commentators, considered his first and middle name, Christopher Columbus, particularly appropriate. Can a name influence the course of a life? Kraft believes so. He commented in his autobiography that with the choice of his name, some of his life's direction was settled from the start. At the age of three, Kraft had a serious accident when he fell into a fire burning at the local trash dump. He was burned on both hands and knees, but the right hand was worse. He had to endure a skin graft and a long healing process. His right hand never fully recovered. Kraft attended school in Phobos for grades 1 through 9, then he finished up at the Hampton High School. As a boy, Kraft played in the American Legion Drum and Bugle Corps and became the state champion bugler. He was also a good baseball player and continued to play baseball into college. One year, he had a batting average of 340. In 1942, Kraft began his studies at Virginia Tech and became a member of the Corps of Cadets. The Corps of Cadets is the military component of the student body at Virginia Tech. Cadets live together in dormitories, march to meals in formation, wear a distinctive uniform on campus, and receive an intense military and leadership 
educational experience similar to that available at the United States Service Academies. During his freshman year, while World War II was raging, Kraft attempted to enlist in the military as a U.S. Navy cadet, but he was rejected because of a burned right hand. That was the only time his hand stopped him from doing something he wanted to do. During his senior year, he was elected president of the Corps of Cadets. At 20 years old, he was the youngest cadet officer ever to hold that position, and that position gave him his first and almost only leadership training. Because of wartime demands, Virginia Tech was operating on a 12-month schedule, and Kraft finished his degree in only two years. He graduated in December 1944 with a Bachelor's of Science degree in Aeronautical Engineering. Upon graduation, Kraft accepted a job with the Chance Fault Aircraft Company in Connecticut. He had also sent an application to the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, NACA, a government agency whose Langley Research Center was located in Hampton, Virginia. Kraft considered Hampton too close to home, but applied anyway in case he could not find anything else. On arrival at Chance Vault, he was told that his he could not be inducted without his birth certificate, which he had not brought with him. Annoyed by the bureaucratic mindset of the company, he decided to accept the offer from the NACA instead. In the 1940s, NACA was a research and development organization devoted to cutting-edge aeronautical research. At the Langley Research Center, advanced wind tunnels were used to test new aircraft designs and studies were taking place on new concepts such as the X-1 rocket plane. Kraft was assigned to the Flight Research Division where Robert Gilruth was the head of research. Kraft's work with the NACA included development of an early example of a gust alleviation system for an aircraft flying in turbulent air. This involved correcting for variations in the atmosphere by automatically deflecting the control surfaces. He also discovered that wingtip vortices and not prop wash were responsible for most of the turbulence in the air that trails flying aircraft. While enjoying his work, Kraft found it increasingly stressful, especially since he did not consider himself to be a strong theoretician. In 1956, he was diagnosed with an ulcer and started to think about a change of career. Now a little background for Kraft's next assignment. You may recall that in 1957, the Russian flight of Sputnik 1 prompted the U.S. to accelerate its fledgling space program. On July 29, 1958, President Dwight D. Eisenhower established NASA. Langley Research Center became a part of NASA, as did Langley employees such as Kraft. Even before NASA began its official existence in October, Kraft was invited by Gilruth to become a part of a new group that was working on the problems of putting a man into orbit. 
Without much hesitation, he accepted the offer. When the Space Task Group was officially formed on November 5th, Kraft became one of the original 35 engineers to be assigned to Project Mercury, America's Man in Space program. As a member of the Space Task Group, Kraft was assigned to Flight Operations Division, which made plans and arrangements for the operation of the Mercury spacecraft during flight and for the control and monitoring of missions from the ground. Kraft became the assistant to Chuck Matthews, the head of the division, and was given the responsibility of putting together a mission plan. Given Matthews' casual analysis of the problem, it sounded almost simple. Matthews told Kraft, quote, Chris, you come up with a basic mission plan, you know, the bottom line stuff on how we fly a man from a launch pad into space and back again. It would be good if you kept him alive, end quote. However, when Kraft began to plan NASA flight operations, no human being had yet flown in space. In fact, the task before him was vast requiring attention to flight plans, timelines, procedures, mission rules, spacecraft tracking, telemetry, ground support, communications network, and contingency management. Which brings us to one of Kraft's most significant contributions to manned spaceflight, which was his origination of the concept of the Mission Control Center. Many of the engineers in Project Mercury had previously worked on flight tests of aircraft, where the role for ground support was minimal. However, Kraft soon realized that an astronaut could only do so much, particularly during the fast-moving launch phase. The Mercury spacecraft would require real-time monitoring and support from specialist engineers. Kraft is quoted as saying, quote, I saw a team of highly skilled engineers, each one an expert on a different piece of the Mercury capsule. We'd have a flow of accurate telemetry data so the experts could monitor their systems, see and even predict problems, and pass along instructions to the astronauts. End quote. These concepts shaped the Mercury Control Center, which was, of course, located in Cape Canaveral, Florida. Another important concept pioneered by Kraft was the idea of a flight director, the man who would coordinate the team of engineers and make real-time decisions about the conduct of the mission. As Matthews later recalled, Kraft came to him one day saying, quote, There needs to be someone in charge of flights while they're actually going on, and I want to be that person, end quote. In this informal way, the position of flight director was born. Moving ahead, a pivotal experience for Kraft was the flight of Mercury Redstone 2, which sent a chimpanzee named Ham into space. I have a clip of Chris Kraft describing the experience before and after the flight. This was recorded in 2009. The Russians in 1957, as we all know, started this whole business with orbiting a satellite known as Sputnik. They had it on page 37 of their newspaper. 
the sec next day after every newspaper in the world had it on the front page, they put it on the front page. And in the spring of 1961, following that, there was a great deal of turmoil in the space program, but even more in the U.S. Everyone was concerned about what was happening with the Russians. The president was having sleepless nights. And in 1961, the U.S. space program was also, which was created to start man's advancement into space, was attempting to launch the first human into space, Alan Shepard. Uh, it was a competition with the Russians. The, the press drove that immensely. Uh, many times we were very unhappy about that. But nevertheless, we were struggling to make a safe launch of the first astronaut into a suborbital flight. Now, the second flight in Project Mercury, which was previous to that, was a very interesting flight because uh, on the sitting on the top of a redstone was a chimpanzee named Ham. And he was there because we had to prove before we could put humans in space that we would indeed would not kill the chimpanzee. Unfortunately, as that flight took place uh, on a rocket built by German engineers in the U.S. Army, the rocket cut off early. And as a result, the escape system created 17 G-force on the, both the chimpanzee and the spacecraft. He was pretty damn unhappy about that. <laughs> And unfortunately, uh, at the same time, it ruined the mechanism of the device that was supposed to test him so that we could, when he got through, prove that he could do a job in space. And as a result, even though he continued, it was a slight interruption in his work, but even though he continued, he was supposed to get a shock if he did the wrong thing and a banana pellet if he did, it did the right thing. And no matter what he did, and he did it correctly, he got a shock. <laughs> and as a result of landing 100 miles downrange and a slight hole in the bottom of his spacecraft, by the time we got there, he was pretty damn mad and also pretty wet. Now, we in operations considered that to be a very successful flight. We did everything we were there to do. We got the chimpanzee back, and he'd done a very good job. But a lot of people didn't see it that way, and particularly the uh, medical community, who had not yet believed that man could do a job in space. And as a result, they said, we want you to test a certain number of chimpanzees at the Johnsville Centrifuge to destruction before we'll let you fly Alan Shepard. Now, fortunately or unfortunately, whichever way you look at it, several weeks later, a gentleman named Yuri Gagarin flew in space. And not only did he not do a suborbital flight, he did an orbital flight. And fortunately, the part that was fortunate about it, the, the doctors quickly 
decided that it was okay for us to put Alan Shepard in space in a suborbital flight. And by the way, that was done in the glare of the real-time press. So while all of that was taking place, the Russians indeed scored a coup as far as the U.S. space program was concerned. However, several weeks later, we flew Alan Shepard. And that was truly a successful flight, but it was also a surprise to the President of the United States and a lot of other people that the response of the United States was high praise. They thought it was a wonderful thing, and it was a hell of a propaganda coup for the United States. As a result, uh, the president called NASA to, I'm paraphrasing here a little bit, called NASA to his, to his offices, and he'd been asking his staff, well, what might we do in space that would ace the Russians? And so the learned fathers of NASA said, well, we could probably fly around the moon in about 10 years. And the president's response for that, that's not very exciting. Why don't you land on the moon? And so two weeks later, all the NASA people got their slide rules out and whatever they had and said, okay, that's what we were proposing to do. If that's what you want us to do, if you are willing to make that commitment, so are we. Now, I don't know whether you, what you think our response to that was, but frankly, it scared the hell out of me. Uh, we didn't know anything about spaceflight at that point in time. We had still not put Mr. Glenn in orbit. Uh, we didn't know how to do orbit determination with the radar data we had, but suddenly somebody was asking us to do the orbital mechanics associated with going to the moon. We had to do tracking and communications at lunar distances. The surface properties of the moon were totally unknown, and many scientists in this country thought you would sink into six feet of dust. Many thought it would caught on, catch on fire due to the flame that came from the devices and we had to figure out how to do a hell of a lot of other things. Now, it also sent us all back to reading Jules Verne. Because we didn't know really how to go into space. And many people had great ideas. But the two, two ideas that came into view were direct ascent as we fired a big rocket from the Earth and shot it at the moon, just like Jules Verne did, and land. The other technique was you'd put everything into Earth orbit, rendezvous, put it all together, and then fire it to the moon and land. And as we began to look at that, and everybody in the country did that had anything to do with going into space, many of the universities, we all came up with these great, huge rockets called NOVA, and there were many rocket systems that were being thought of. Well, fortunately, a small group of very smart guys at the Langley Research Center started looking at what they might do to overcome this tremendous amount of mass that would have to be sent towards the moon. And they decided that the best way to do that was to take a bug, as they called it, 
and orbit it around the moon with uh, a mothership, send it down to the moon, land and take off again in the bug, and then re-rendezvous with the spaceship called the mothership at that point in time. Now, as it was first thought of by all these people who had been thinking the other way, they thought they were crazy. They literally thought those people were crazy to think that we could do rendezvous around the moon. But as they began to recognize the reduction in weight and set a certain amount of intrigue to it, and eventually that's how all the people decided that we would do it and call it Lunar Orbit Rendezvous. The men sitting here tonight were thankful that that happened. Now, as we th begin to, began to think about that, however, and yet had not flown the first man in orbit with Mercury, we recognized that we probably had to do a lot of learning. And that's when we conceived the Gemini spacecraft. It was actually a two-man version of the Mercury spacecraft. It would allow us to do, hopefully, rendezvous and docking in space for the first time. It would allow us to use something besides batteries as power, known as a fuel cell. It would help us to find out if man could survive for 14 days at zero gravity. It would help us to do EVA, which Mr. Aldrin here practiced valiantly on, on Gemini 12 and proved it could be done. Uh, it developed, we had to develop new spacesuits which to allow the men to survive in uh, while working in space. And all of these new requirements uh, were operations that eventually we would have to do around the moon. And in a sense, then, Gemini was a proving ground for Apollo. Another pivotal experience for Kraft was the flight of Mercury Atlas V, which sent a chimpanzee named Enos on the first American orbital space flight carrying a live passenger. Coverage of these early missions that carried non-human passengers could often be tongue-in-cheek. A Time Magazine article on the flight, for example, was titled, Meditative Chimpanot. Yet Kraft viewed them as important tests for the men and procedures of mission control, and as rehearsals for the manned missions that would follow. Originally, the flight of Mercury Atlas had been intended to last for three orbits. However, the failure of one of the hydrogen peroxide jets controlling the spacecraft's attitude forced Kraft to make the decision to bring the capsule back to Earth after two orbits. After the flight, astronaut John Glenn stated that he believed a human passenger would have been able to bring the capsule under control without the need for an early re-entry. Thus, in the words of Time magazine, quote, affirming the superiority of astronauts over chimpanots, end quote. But for Kraft, the flight of Enos represented something else. Proof of the importance of real-time decision-making in mission control. It was the first time Kraft faced a life-or-death decision as a flight director, no matter that the life was a chimpanzee. In those last minutes, all that mattered was getting him home safely. Kraft wrote in his autobiography, quote, I don't remember thinking of him as a chimp. 
He was my responsibility as much as any astronaut would ever be. End quote. Kraft experienced the responsibility that he as a flight director would have for the life of another, whether human or chimpanzee. Another thing learned by Kraft was it was better to make a conservative decision in the present and end the mission rather than wait for the perfect decision and possibly lose everything. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.